Good morning, church, here and in the sanctuary and live stream. We are in Luke chapter 18 today as we continue through Luke and supplemental material in the book of Mark. In Luke 18, Jesus is walking under the shadow of the cross. He is on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem, about 15 to 17 miles journey. And he's had a heart-rending conversation with his men as we approach the account we're going to look at this morning. And the heart-rending conversation is found in Luke 18, 31 through 34. Listen to the scripture. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And then the narrative says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So here's Jesus. He's walking under the shadow of the cross. He's going to Jerusalem, where he's going to be betrayed, mocked, flogged, spit upon, and killed. And he's going to rise again. He's going to bear the sin of his people upon his shoulder. Today is Yom Kippur in the old Jewish calendar. And Yom Kippur, found in Leviticus 11, one day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for sin with the shed blood of a lamb. And the promise was that God would pass over their sin or cover their sin, and it went from year to year to year to year. And so Jesus says here that he is the fulfillment of all those promises. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world by his death upon the cross, by his shed blood. And so he pours out his heart to his men, and the book of Mark says this is the third time he had done it, and these words, we read it's very clear, they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And so as he's walking under the shadow of the cross with his trusted friends who have no clue about what he's going to go through, no empathy, no understanding. In fact, two of them argue about who's going to reign in the kingdom when Jesus sets up this great government, James and John. So so he's walking under the shadow of the cross. He understands what's coming. a burden that's unspeakable. His friends don't get it. And even in the midst of this incredible pain, Jesus stops and he loves a blind beggar that Mark tells us his name, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. And, and so throughout this 18th chapter of Luke, we've, we hear 
Jesus tell him by precept and parable and by illustration and reality that he loves the outsider. He loves the person that the society says they're, they're not important. So, so we hear the parable about a widow who obviously has no husband and she has no brothers. She has no sons to argue her case. And so she goes to an unjust judge and she pleads for the judge to have mercy. And he finally grants her her request. It's a parable about prayer, but also it's a parable about a woman who's an outcast receiving mercy. And then the very next story is the story about the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisee being an insider, someone who knew the law and knew the standards of God and kept the standards of God. And the tax collector, a despised, hated, swindler person who worked for the occupational forces. And Jesus says in this story that the tax collector who was broken before God went home justified and the Pharisee did not, blew their mind. And right on the heels of that, Little children come to him. And the disciples say, he's too important for little children. Just he, They were trying to push them away or shoo them away. And Jesus sternly admonishes them and says, the kingdom of God belongs to ones like these. And he says to the adults, unless you become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom. And I think the scripture says there that, that you're helpless, you're, you're defenseless, and you're needy. You're needy. Needy people get into the kingdom. And then he has this statement about going to Jerusalem and bearing the sin of his people. And right after that, Jesus, who is struggling, who feels kind of abandoned by his friends, who is at the end of his emotional, probably physical, you know, limit, loves a blind beggar. Blows my mind. Now, the Lord's Day... If you were someone with a physical deformity, you were considered to be persona non grata. You're outside the pale. In fact, in John 9, the disciples walking along, they see a man that's blind from birth, and they say to Jesus, Lord, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born this way? And Jesus says, neither. And so the glory of God might be revealed in his life. But, but there's this, this, this feeling that if, if you are physically not whole, you are, you've been cursed because of, of something you deserve. Either God saw sin that you would do or your parents did sin, therefore you're outside. Not only was he blind, but he was a beggar. He was a poor man. There was no safety net. And so he's sitting by the road, and he hears a commotion. He says, what's going on? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, the teacher, is coming this way. And he begins shouting out, and he says this. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, that the son of David is a term proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given to David when the Lord said, David, you will always have a descendant on the throne of the people of Israel. So what he's saying is Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of David's hopes and dreams and aspiration, prescribing to him and declaring that he is eternal God. It's an amazing statement. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And then those who are in front of him 
rebuked him. Now, this, the word here, rebuke, does not mean they said, hey, man, be quiet. He's, the teacher's busy. He's going to Jerusalem. It means they turned and they sternly warned him in anger. How dare you, a blind beggar forsaken of God, cry out to this important teacher? How dare you? But this is what desperate people do. He cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And following him, a glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So here's a, a blind beggar like, who cries out all the more, and he receives his sight. So I'm going to use this as a springboard to talk today about personal saving faith, going from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing, and we interweave that through this story. So let me give you a definition of saving faith. Saving faith is personal trust in Jesus as a living person for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven. Saving faith is personal trust in Jesus as a living person for the forgiveness of sin. See, listen to me. Saving faith is more than mere knowledge. There are a lot of people who will hear sermons today in this place or they'll hear it other, other places and, and, and they will say things like, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I believe in God. You know, I see, I see the change of seasons. I see the beautiful creation around us. I see order in the universe. I, yeah, I, I believe in God. That's as far as it goes. In fact, James talks about people who, quote, believe in God. And James says, so you believe in God, but he says, but you're not living it out. He says, just because you believe in God and you're not living it out doesn't mean you're in, basically. He says, I want to remind you of one thing. The devil believes in God, and he shudders. At least the devil shudders. You're just, it's, it's a non-issue for you. The second thing about saving faith is it's more than approving certain facts. There, there are a lot of people who are raised in certain churches and they can stand up and they can quote the Apostles' Creed and they can say, yeah, I, I guess, I, I, guess I, I believe that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Yeah, yeah. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Yeah, I, I believe that. But it really hasn't gripped them. <laughs> It's not personal. And we believe the Bible says that those people are not in a saving relationship with the Lord. Saving faith is not, I hear this frequently, saving faith is not an irrational commitment to something that has no, no evidence. Um, you hear the term, you got to have faith when something is proposed as impossible. I went to the Citadel. I love the Citadel. I've enjoyed Citadel football for years. Last week we played Clemson. And the second half was really good. We did good the second half. It was 0-0 through the second half. But the first half was not a good thing to, to behold. 
So the week before the game, some people would say to me, say, hey, how you guys going to do against Clemson? I said, well, I said, we have a good program, but I, nah, it's not, it's not going to happen. And they said, several people said to me, you got to have faith. And I'm going, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's, it's really confidence in an irrational fact that has no substantial evidence to it. Or I'll show a picture of these guys standing on Mount Everest. So here's a guy. I think to climb Mount Everest today was going to cost you 100 grand or more. It's, it's unbelievable. It's ridiculous. But so people kind of sort of train. They hire these, hire these Sherpas, and they go up the tallest mountain in the world. But, but to go there, you've got to have ice shoes. You've got to have ice pick. You've got to be dressed incredibly warm. You've got to have guides with ladders that get you over crevices because right beneath that crevice is probably a 2,000-foot drop, so you just can't jump across. You've got to have somebody that is able to get across and put a ladder for those of you who are paying Sherpas to get across. And you've got to have an oxygen tank ready because when you get to a certain elevation, you've got to put on an oxygen tank or you'll be oxygen deprived and you'll pass out, so forth and so on. But, but if somebody said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have faith. We're going to, have, we're going to climb Mount Everest in flip-flops and T-shirts. You know what they call those people? Dead. <laughs> Dead. They don't make it. So, so they said, well, you've got to have faith. No, no, no. Faith is not a, an irrational belief in something that has no evidence. You see, that's why I say saving faith is personal trust in the living Christ. See, Jesus lived a real life, a flesh and blood. He died on a cross that had, if you rubbed your hand across the cross, you'd have splinters in your hands. He was buried in a real tomb. He died. He rose victorious over death. He walked among people for several weeks. 500 men saw the resurrected Christ, and the, he ascended into heaven. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. It really happened. So I've, I've heard people say, well, it really doesn't make a difference if you believe historical events as long as you have experienced the reality of Jesus in your heart. That has no biblical firepower at all. It's like saying we're going to climb Mount Everest in flip-flops and T-shirts. It doesn't work. It's a real personal faith in the living Christ who has risen from the dead. So, personal faith. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes into him can be translated as eternal life. John 1, 12. But as many as personally received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Or John 7, 37. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come to me. A personal response to the living Christ. Or Matthew 11. Come to me. See, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. In the, in the book of Mark, chapter 10, the same account, he, he, he says to the blind beggar, come to me. And it says, he sprang up and threw off his cloak, and he came into the presence of Jesus. A real encounter with the real God. And as you do that, you turn from sin. 
You encounter the Christ, you turn from sin. You encounter the Christ, you turn from sin. When you come to him initially or when you've been walking in the way of the, of the Lord for 40, 50, 60 years. So I'm going to use this as a kind of a background, talk about three types of people and how blindness has impacted them. Okay? Three types of people. Number one, we're going to work with people. We're going to go to class with people this week. We're going to walk in a neighborhood and see people this week who are blind and they do not know it. They do not see the beauty of Jesus. They do not see the forgiveness of sins by the work of the cross and the substitute whose name is Jesus, the living God. They, they don't see it. And, and so, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, so the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus. And, and so, so, so what, what we do is we cry out, God have mercy upon them, and we have compassion upon them. So, so, so the only reason, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've trusted him, the reason that you're here today and you've trusted him is that God in his tender mercy open your eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Open your eyes to see the forgiveness of sin. He's worked in your heart, and he works in people's hearts as we take the gospel, the scripture, and we speak to them, and as the gospel is spoken to them, the Holy Spirit penetrates their hearts, and they see the beauty of Christ. Therefore, we should have pleading mercy on people that maybe would mock us for our faith or belittle us. Paul wrote a letter to a guy named Timothy. It was the last thing Paul wrote. It was called 2 Timothy and in 2 Timothy 2.24, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, the Lord's bondservant, which would be us, broadly speaking, the Lord's bond, God's people, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, you know, ready to fight, chip on your shoulder. He must not be quarrelsome, but he must be, four things, he must be kind to all, kind, able to teach, Patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance unto life, and they may escape from the snare of the devil. Do you hear that? It's just so clear. See, not quarrelsome, kind, able to teach, teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. That's what we're called to do as we speak Christ and speak the standards of God in our culture. So I plead with you, especially those of you who've been raised in this media glut, the way we communicate is you say something a little bit edgy, I'm going to be more edgy. You become nasty, I'm going to become nastier, and you just up the ante. We don't live like that. I don't do social media except to do some research and text message occasionally. And sometimes I'll go on, on a, a, what's it called, a Twitter account. 
And I'll, I'll read something, then I'll read responses to and I'm going, I can't believe they said that people are saying this. I mean, it's just so really vile. And some of them claim to be Christians, and I'm saying, God, convict, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness. None of that's there. None of that's there. And so we don't back away. We don't become milk toast and jello-ish. We are to teach, and we're to stand up and speak with grace and dignity, but we do it with kindness and gentleness and patience. So I, I, I just say that's who we are to be. Brothers and sisters, that, that's what we're, we're, we're called to do. And, and so we pray for people, realizing that the, the reason we're, we see the beauty of Jesus, God has opened our eyes. Somebody took the gospel and brought it to us. A freshman in F Company at the Citadel brought it to me. And he said, read this. He took me to Bible study. He brought it to me. And as I went, God's Spirit opened my eyes. And the name that formerly was nothing more than a curse word for me became the joy of my heart. So let me tell you about a guy named William Tyndale, one of my favorite guys. William Tyndale died in 1536 on October the 6th. So his death date is a week from Tuesday. So William Tyndale was uh, died at age 39, burned at the stake. And uh, Tyndale was famous for Bible translation. He knew, we think, eight languages. He was a language guru. But William Tyndale had, had a deep desire to take the Greek New Testament and the Latin Vulgate for the came from the Greek New Testament and translate that into English. He wanted the people of his country, England, to be able to read the Bible. And William Tyndale, as he studied the Bible, came to glory in the gospel of grace. This is what I said about the gospel. It says this. This is it says the gospel is good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. <laughs> That's William Tyndale. But people said, you know, you can't give the Bible to people because they're going to misunderstand it, and the, the established church will lose its power. And he's living in a house uh, owned by a very wealthy man who was the benefactor of several people who were training to be monks and, and students, and they were studying. And over the course of, they had all these discussions over supper. And one night a man said, I'd rather have the Pope's laws than the Word of God. And this is what William Tyndale said. And this is, this is a, a good response. He said, it's just a general response, but it's, it's, it's got some strength. William Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life for many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow behind an ox to know more of the Scripture than you do. Boom. That's, that's pretty strong. He loved the Scripture. And so he, he translated the Greek to English. He was living in Europe, had to flee for his life out of England. And they put, over the next couple of years, a thousand copies of the Bible wrapped up in, in cloth and smuggled them into England. And over a thousand copies of the Scripture were distributed and people were gathering and they were reading them and they were together. And, and so they, they, they seized William Tyndale, but not until he translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. So he had a complete Bible. The Tyndale translation. They seized him. They tried him. 
They found him guilty and he was condemned to be burned at the stake on October the 6th, 1536. They took him to the stake, they tied him up, and as they lit the kindling, he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Wow. There was no, God's going to get you. You're going to face the judgment of God. You guys, it was just God opened the eyes of the King of England, and he died, 39 years old. Three years later, Henry VIII decreed a law that every church, no matter how small or big, every church in all of England was to have a copy of Tyndale's translation of the scripture in their church for people to read in English. And I stepped back and said, thanks be to God for William Tyndale who was, as the Lord's bondservant, kind to all, able to teach, patient with the wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. Secondly, there are people who are blind and they're in process of seeing. There are people here today that they're beginning to see the Lord's work in their life. They're beginning to hear and Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you're at the right place. That's what Romans 10 says. So you're in the process of seeing. But what, 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 what often happens is people will hit a roadblock and they'll see that they're lacking and, and then they cry out, what must I do? So what must I do? Here I read this, this quote. It says that our consciences tell us that we have done wrong and we deserve to be punished by God. Sometimes the tone is condemning and mocking and lamenting, but always it is painful. There is only one silencer, and that is faith in Jesus done, finished. Faith in Jesus that is, that is complete it's, it's over. But what happens is we come to this roadblock. It may be a broken relationship, a broken marriage, a child that's broken our heart. It may be a job issue, but we come to a roadblock and we hit it and we say, I'm not the person I need to be. I'm not. I'm not the person I need to be. I don't keep my own standards, much less the standards of God. And I know the secret thoughts of my heart and the inclinations of my mind. And I know that sometimes there are people that if I heard that they had been stricken with the disease, I would smile inside while groaning on the outside because my heart is not what it should be. And, then so, and so you say, what must I do? See, every religion, except the religion of the grace of the cross, is what must I do? Example, Hinduism is an amorphous, undefinable religion that is fascinating to me. And, and God cannot be ultimately defined there are various streams and paths. I mean, it's amazing. We used to really drill down to Hinduism. It is a vast network of undefinable, uh, really fascinating things. But there is one path called the path, I think it's called the path of Asharam, that is, is, has four sequences. Sequence one is the life of the student. That's from birth until you're trained and schooling and your occupation, the path of the student. Then two is the path of the householder where you develop a little bit of wealth and maybe you get married and have kids and 
develop a trade and maybe build some equity. Path three is, or stage three is the path of retirement where you step away from your job. And then path four or door four is the door of renunciation where you walk away from your wife and your kids and your business and your house and you renounce everything to be made holy in the sight of God so that you come back in higher life form or may be absorbed in the universe, mukti. And there's a picture here of a guy, if you go to any major city in India today, you'll see people like this, men like this especially, and they'll be walking around in, in the saffron robe with a bowl and maybe a staff and they're, they're begging for their food. And this guy maybe three years ago was riding in an air-conditioned limo as a CEO of a company. But he went to retirement and now he's in the path of renunciation. Some people who really holy go from the path of the student, the way the student, straight to renunciation. So they live in this renunciation mindset all their life. And really what they're saying is, what must I do? What must I give up? What must I do? Or you go to Islam, that's much more easily understood. And Islam says there are five, pal five pillars to Islam. First pillar is you must believe this basic truth. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the final ultimate prophet. Okay. Number two, you, sh you must pray five times a day facing Mecca, the home of Islam. What must I do? Pray five times a day. Three, you must give alms to the poor, like one twentieth of your income to the poor. What must I do? Number four, you must sometime in your life endeavor to make a holy pilgrimage to Mecca to earn merit from Allah for visiting the birthplace of Islam. What must I do? And fifthly, you must, during the month of Ramadan, one whole month from sunrise to sunset, you don't eat, drink, take tobacco, um, drink any caffeine, nothing to make yourself more holy. It's all about what must I do. I'm telling you, every religion is about what must I do except, except the religion of the grace of the cross. I, I've yet to find one that doesn't say what must I do. See, it's the gospel of done. It's the gospel of complete, finished. Let me read verse 31 again, Luke 18. And taking the 12 aside, he said, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The cross accomplished all the promises of the Old Testament. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you have that trust? Have you turned from sin and come to Christ? And there's a third group. The third group are the people that formerly were blind. So this man, Jesus says, bring him to me. He springs up throws his cloak behind, comes in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus answers him, maybe a, a rhetorical question, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, I, I want to recover my sight. He saw, and this is what happened after he saw. He followed Jesus, glorified God, and all the people saw it and gave praise to God. His friends and neighbors saw the change and said, wow, 
So, so there, there's a group of, of us here, many trusted, that have formerly were blind, but now we see by the grace of God, and we've trusted him, and, and we're discovering, I've been a believer almost 46 years. So you, you, you realize as you go forward and you walk the life of faith and trust, and the Holy Spirit continues to push you into the light. See, God wants to change us. The Bible says, from glory to glory, he's changed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's such a wonderful verse, 2 Corinthians 3. So, changing us from glory to glory. So, as you trust, you see that he is trustworthy. I was thinking, um, as I was going through this, about the joy of walking with people and knowing them who are trustworthy worthy, who just are kind. I thought about some of the guys that I uh, have the privilege of, of serving with on this church staff. I could talk about Dean or Craig or Steve, Dave. Remember, I was with a guy last night named Carl Schooling, and Carl's been on staff here for 26 years. I've known Carl for 40 years, maybe 41 and he is a trustworthy, dependable guy. The more you get to know some people, the more trustworthy they are, and the more you go, this is so good. And, and yet Carl, who's a wonderful man who loves Christ, and he's a wonderful man, is like me. He's still a sinner. So you take the trustworthiness of a dear friend or a coworker or neighbor, and you multiply the character of God 100 million times. And that's a statement of trustworthiness. This is just a small reflection. So th th this man discovered that the living God was trustworthy. I was thinking about this, and I thought about a guy in church history again named Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna. He died in 156, early, early, early. He was discipled by John, who wrote the Gospel of John. So Polycarp is 86 years old. There's a wave of persecution that comes through. And since he's the bishop, they come for him. He refuses to flee. And they haul him before the local magistrate, who's a Roman toady. And he, he, says, uh, he says, Polycarp, um, We've been commanded to put people to death unless they confess that Caesar is Lord. So all you got to do is to walk out of here and, and enjoy the last few years of your life. He was at least 86. He was old. All you got to do is to burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said, I can't do it. And the, the guy kind of tried to give him a break. He says, Polycarp, says, you don't get it. We're, we're going to get nothing out, out of putting you to death. You're an old you're an old guy. We don't need to do this. Just burn a little incense and mutter under your breath, Caesar's Lord, and walk away. This is what Polycarp said. Get ready for this. This is good. He said, for 80 and 6 years, I have served him as my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. Wow. Then he said this. You speak of a fire that burns for an hour and then is no more, and you have no understanding of the eternal fires of judgment. 
He says, do what you will. Bring it on. And they burn him at the stake, 86 years old at least. It's good. Now let me close with this. I'm going to speak to some of us who are maybe a little bit older. The Lord wants to, us to continue to go into the light. It's possible to learn truth, to learn the gospel, and not let the gospel um, get into your heart. I mean, you believe certain things, and I mean, you regenerate, you're, you're going to heaven, but, but it's not pushing us. To, so I, I want to suggest to you that this morning, the living Christ, by the power of the Spirit, steps, stands in front of us all, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, now, not, I want to be healthy and good looking and make all a 4-0. Not that. What do you want me to do for you that's going to make you more like me? What do you want to do for me that's going to push you deeper into the kingdom and to make you more useful to those around you? What do you want, to do, what do you want me to do in your life to make you the person that I've called you to be? You know, it, it may be God... I want you to restore my marriage. God, I, I want you to take away my, my spirit of anger. Uh, I want you to take away my unforgiving attitude towards this person. I, I want you to help me to love a very difficult parent or a very difficult child. Lord, please do that in me. There's an old hymn that says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. I love that statement. So the sin is forgiven, is covered by the blood of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, breaks the power. Lord, I want you to take away the cravings of my heart for pornography. And when I fall, I go into this circle of despair and self-condemnation and self-loathing. I don't want to live there anymore, Lord, please. What do you want Jesus to do for you? See, you can, you can hear this room say, yeah, 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 but this is what I want you to do. I want you to have a, find a trusted friend, your community group, your man-to-man table, your women's group, just a friend you pray with, and tell them, Please pray with me that this is what Jesus would do for me. I want to see better. I want to be used more clearly. I want to be the person God has called me to be. So, so do that. That's your, so if you're a believer, find that person. Say, pray with me that God will do this in me for me. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we, we plead that you would open the eyes of people to see the beauty of Jesus. We think of our neighbors, our coworkers, family members. And, and Lord, unless you open eyes, they're not going to see. I thank you that you intersect the power of opening eyes with the spoken gospel of Jesus. So let us take the gospel out. And as we take it out, open eyes. I thank you that there are people in here that are in process and they're, they're either are going to 
say, even, even at this moment, I believe that Jesus is God who rose from the dead and I'm turning away. I'm leaving my cloak. I'm springing up. I'm following him. Or are you going to work in their hearts? I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for us who claim the name of Jesus that we would walk in the light. Don't let us fall into a stagnant or even a smug orthodoxy. But let us plead for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Teach us, I pray, O oh Lord. Work in us. Give us hearts that repent because we want to taste the really, really good stuff that comes from your throne in Jesus' name. Amen.